Well, several years ago, um, there was a Dove soap commercial that made a lasting impression on me. It, it featured an FBI sketch artist named Gil Zamora. And what Gil was asked to do was to draw or sketch some portraits of some ladies, some ladies that he would not see with his eyes. So they sat next to him. There was a curtain in between them. He couldn't see them, and he was going to draw their face, a portrait of their face based entirely on how they answered questions that he would ask them. So like, describe your hair for me. What does that look like? How about your eyes? What about your nose? What about your chin? And when he was done sketching that portrait, the ladies then left without seeing what he had drawn because then what Gil did was draw a second portrait or sketch a second portrait of the same women, but this time not based on how the woman described herself, but based on how someone else who had seen the woman described that woman. Now, and then when they were done, they put those portraits side by side. In fact, I, I have some of them from this commercial probably about 10 years ago or so. And I'm wondering if you can guess what happened. So what happened almost universally was that the sketch based on how the woman described herself almost inevitably, and it's the one on the left in each of these squares, inevitably looked slightly sadder and slightly less pretty than the one on the right, the one that was drawn from someone else's description. And for Dove Soap, the idea behind the commercial or the, the punchline at the end was this, that you have more beauty than you think you have. Now, that may or may not be true. It depends how beautiful you think you are, okay? <laughs> but as I was thinking about that little experiment and what that commercial, that interesting commercial, that interesting test, you know, what came out of it, for me, there was a different truth that I kind of globbed onto, and actually it happens to be our first fill-in for today, that your perception of yourself is not always a perfect reflection of reality. So the way that we perceive ourselves is not necessarily always going to be reality. And, and sometimes we think more highly of ourselves than what is really true. And other times, maybe, in, in other situations, we think less of ourselves than maybe what is reality. Now, this view of yourself, this, this idea of how you view yourself, is something that is really important for us to think about as we dig into the topic that's before us today. Before I get into the topic, I just want to do a quick catch-up for all of you as to where we've been in this series. And so in the very first week, we asked all of you to visualize the hurt that maybe someone has had against you, a hurt that someone has done against you, like um, the thorns on a cactus. And when they've, they've hurt you in one way or another, it, it's, we wanted you to visualize it like they gave you this thorny cactus that you were forced to hold. 
And the question that we've been looking at is, what are you going to do with that? Sometimes we feel like throwing it right back at them, giving, them, giving it back to them so that they can hold on to it or hold on to something else. Sometimes what we have to admit is that we haven't done anything with it. We've just kind of held on to that hurt for a really long time, and it's led maybe to some bitterness. But then what God has directed us to is that there is a better way to handle the hurts in our lives, the sins that are against us, that he directs us because of what Jesus has done for us to do what we can to take that hurt and to put it down, to not hold on to it, not throw it back, but to let go of it. And if you weren't here with us for those first three messages, I'd, I'd highly recommend you to, to listen to those. You can find them on our website because today what we're going to do is transition from the question of how do I forgive other people to a question that so many of us have had in one way or another. The question is this, how do I forgive myself? How do I forgive myself for the hurt that I've caused myself? How do I forgive myself for the hurt that I've caused other people? How do I, how do I live with myself for that thing that I did a month ago or a year ago or 20 years ago? And the truth of the matter is that I've had more than one person ask me, are, are we going to get to a place in this series where we're talking about the, the ability to figure it ourselves? And the fact that people are asking about it tells me that there's a, a lot of people that are navigating this because sometimes the sharpest thorns come not from a cactus that other people caused you to hold, but instead ones that we caused in our lives. And this um, forgiving ourselves can be a result of a lot of different things or this, this difficulty in forgiving ourselves. Um, I, I was thinking this week about parenting as, as my kids are kind of transitioning from being at home to uh, being adults. And if I wanted to dwell on all my failures in parenting and the things that I wish I could have said differently, the things I see in my kids that I don't love and I know where they got it from... Um, it would be really hard if I just kept focusing on those things. I think in parenting, there can be this thing about um, not being there enough, not doing the right thing, and sometimes things don't turn out the way we'd like them to, and we blame ourselves. What about those college years? Some of us would like to have those back and redo those, but we can't. Some of us would like to redo a relationship or a first marriage, maybe. Maybe it's something you clicked on that you'd like to have back. Maybe it was some words that were said in anger that have plagued you. Why did I say that? I, I ruined this relationship or I hurt things. Um, there's so many different ways that we can find ourselves thinking about the past. And it can be really hard to deal sometimes with the guilt, especially if the consequences are ones that don't go away, that the consequences of that decision are things that we're living in day after day. Now, when people have difficulty forgiving themselves, 
There are a couple ways that people naturally try to navigate and deal with their feelings, that feeling of guilt. One of the natural ways that people tend to try to deal with it because they don't know what else to do is to just deny that it happened. So kind of you you deny the past. You kind of ignore it. You don't deal with it and go through it. Instead, you just ignore it and pretend like it wasn't there or pretend like it wasn't a big deal. Or another way that sometimes we deny the past is we create a narrative that inwardly we know is not quite true, where all of the blame for what we did is on someone else, and we sort of excuse ourselves from culpability. That's a way that people, maybe even you, have naturally dealt with something that, of guilt that has plagued you. Another way on the kind of the opposite end of the spectrum from that would be that sometimes what happens is that people become defined by the past. And what I mean by that is that because they haven't been able to forgive themselves, because they haven't been able to work through it, that it just kind of saps the joy out of everything, that you don't feel loved by God. You don't feel worthy of good things in your life or blessing in your life because there's this thing that you did that in some ways, again, maybe you're experiencing the consequences of, but have ripped away joy or a feeling of worthiness. Now, for some of us, this is a really big thing, this inability to forgive ourselves. For others of us, maybe it's not quite as as huge of a thing. And yet, I think we all can understand this feeling of guilt. And what do we do with it? So let me go back to the words of our first fill-in. It went like this. Your perception of yourself is not always a perfect reflection of reality. And I want you to recognize that the way you view yourself is not always the way that you should be viewing yourself. And in fact, let me ask you this question. Who talks to you more than anyone else? And some of your you husbands are thinking, yes, it's my chatty wife. She talks to me more than anyone else. And that's a good thing. Imagine how quiet the world would be if it was just dudes, right? Um, but that's not the answer. Spouse, not the answer. Parents, not the answer. I, I think you kind of know what the answer is. The, the person who talks to you more than anyone else is You. And, and so we really need to be careful about the words that we're sharing with ourselves. We really need to be careful about the, the, the messages that we're giving ourselves. Because if you're constantly telling yourself that you're not loved and you're not worthy, or back to the Dove commercial, you're not pretty, you're going to begin to believe that which you are telling yourself because it's your voice that you hear the most. So guess what we're going to do? For the sake of this message, we're going to ignore what you're telling yourself. We're not going to focus on what others are telling or saying about you. For the purpose of this message, what I want us to hone in on is the most important voice. And that's this. What does God say about you? What does God have to say about you? Sin and all. 
And to sort of dig into that today, we're going to cross paths with probably one of the most famous followers of Jesus. He also happened to be one of Jesus' uh, best friends here on earth. His name was Peter. And some of you know some things about Peter. He was one of those guys that, you know, talked first and then thought afterwards. And sometimes that was great because Peter would have these great statements of faith and he'd get out of the boat and start walking on the water because this was Peter. And he was brave and he was bold. And then sometimes Peter's mouth kind of got him into trouble where he would... um, He would say something and then not necessarily be able to follow through on it. So it was was the night before Jesus would die. And he and the disciples are gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem. And Jesus, during the course of that evening, is more than hinting at the fact that this was going to be the last meal that they would have together. And yet the disciples didn't quite entirely get what Jesus was saying. Jesus said that he would be going somewhere, but Peter didn't quite understand it, but that didn't stop Peter because he talks. And so in that upper room, here's what he said. It's in John 13. He said, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. Um, Jesus was going to die And someday the disciples would also die, just like you and I, unless Jesus returns first. So Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. So I don't know exactly what you're talking about, Jesus. I don't know exactly where you're going, but it doesn't matter where you're going. Even if it costs me my life, I will follow you. Jesus had something to say will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, not only will you not die for me, but you will disown me. You will admit not knowing me. You will say you don't even know me three times. And most of you know what happened, right? Later that evening, Jesus was arrested by the the Jewish leaders, and there was a contingent of people that kind of followed from afar, close enough to see Jesus, but far enough away that they weren't, you know, right next to him. They were following and watching because they weren't sure what was going to happen to Jesus. There was a curiosity around this because it was not normal for a person to be arrested in the middle of the evening and to be tried in the middle of the night. And while Peter is watching, there's a girl that sees him and thinks that he looks like someone who had been hanging out with Jesus, one of his disciples. And this girl asks Peter if he knows Jesus, and in fact, your accent is one of a Galilean, you you certainly are one of those disciples, aren't you? And Peter denies it. Just like Jesus said, Peter denies knowing Jesus. He's afraid. 
And, and then there's this thing that Luke records that happens that probably would have been a picture in Peter's mind that he would have gone back to over and over again, at least I would if I was him. Here's what Luke records. Just as Peter was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. So in the midst of this crowd, in the midst of this evening, Peter and a crowd is following from afar. Peter denies knowing Jesus and Jesus' eyes lock onto Peter's. You imagine the feeling in Peter's heart when that happened. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And over the course of the next 12 to 36 hours, there were so many different emotions that Peter was going through. Um, there was the horror that would come in a little while as he would see his friend, his savior, his Lord be crucified on a cross. There was the fear that Peter felt after Jesus was crucified, thinking that he or maybe some of the other disciples might be next. And so they locked themselves in an upper room out of fear of the Jewish officials. There was the confusion that Peter was experiencing on Sunday morning as some of the women came back to tell Peter and the boys that the tomb was empty and that Jesus' body was not there. And he runs to the tomb with John, finds the same thing. Jesus' body is missing. And then that confusion later on that Sunday turns into amazement and joy as they see Jesus alive and not dead, alive as the savior of the world to prove his victory over sin and death, not just for the 12 disciples, but for you and me and everyone who has faith in Jesus. And in all of those emotions that I just described, you know what was also going on in the background, no doubt, of Peter's mind and heart, there was another feeling, another emotion. It's the one that we're talking about today. Peter, in the midst of it, was also feeling this. He was feeling guilt. Yeah, there was joy. But as we'll come to find out, there was something else that needed to be resolved. It was, it was Peter's guilt. Peter needed to hear Jesus absolve him from that sin. There was confusion, there was fear. Life was going on, and yet there was guilt in the background. Can you relate? Sometimes? Now, before we get to the second part of the text today, I do want to point out one little nuance about guilt that will help you better understand it. That the reality about guilt is this that the presence of guilt can be a blessing. So think about it this way. What would happen if, physically speaking, you felt no pain for anything? In fact, there is a physical disorder that where this can happen for some people, that their nerve endings don't work and they don't feel anything. You kind of feel like that might be a good thing because, like, Pain stinks. I don't want to feel pain. But when there is no pain, there is no recognition that your hand is on the stove 
or that your arm might be broken if you don't move it. The same thing is true spiritually. No one likes to feel guilt. But I think it's good for us to recognize that it can be a good thing. It can go one of two ways, our second fill-in. Unhealthy guilt or dealing with guilt in an unhealthy way drives a person away from God and leads to despair. In fact, someone said this, that guilt that's not addressed in a healthy way is kind of like the devil's playground because he will use that guilt to make you question God's love, your worthiness, his ability to forgive you and lead you in a place of despair. But, but when guilt is addressed in a healthy way, it can be a blessing, just like it's a blessing to feel the pain of a hot stove so that you know to remove your hand. Healthy guilt drives you towards God and leads to forgiveness. When you recognize, okay, I did something, I feel bad about it, and I don't just feel bad about the consequences, that's one type of feeling bad, but I also feel bad, even if there weren't consequences, I feel bad about the sin, and I need, I need healing from that. When it drives you to God for grace and forgiveness, that can be a great thing. And as I was thinking about the last day of Jesus' earthly life, it, it was amazing for me to recognize that there are actually two people that had some pretty big moral failures in that last day of Jesus' life. One is Peter, and the other, you know his name as well. His name was Judas. Now, Judas, for those of you who don't know, betrayed Jesus into the hands of the, the Jewish leaders um, for 30 silver coins. And after he did it, and after he saw Jesus be arrested, there was a great amount of guilt that came over his heart. You can read about it for yourself in the Gospels. And he gave the coins back. The Jews were not going to release Jesus. You know what? happened to Judas? His guilt led him to despair. His guilt led Judas to a conclusion that wasn't true. A recognition of himself, a perception of himself that wasn't reality, that there's no way that he could be forgiven. There's no way he deserved to be with the 12 disciples anymore. And so he isolated himself. He tried to deal with it on his own. And ultimately, his guilt, many of you know, led him to so much despair that he took his own life. But Peter? Peter also had guilt. And it could have led him to despair, but it didn't. And I want you to notice that that. One of the things Peter didn't do is he did not separate himself from the disciples. He didn't go off on his own. He didn't try to find his own truth or his own healing. He, he stuck around the disciples who knew Jesus. In fact, I'll say it this way, that 
Peter's guilt led him to Jesus and not away. And in fact, at the very same time as Peter was hoping for some resolution to this guilt, Jesus knew exactly what Peter needed to. And so some days after the resurrection, Jesus is near the Sea of Galilee with the, 12, or the 11 disciples at that time. And they have a meal together. And one of the things that Jesus does after the meal is he makes sure to connect personally with Peter. We read in John chapter 21, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I want you to to recognize the similarity between this question that Jesus is asking and what Peter was talking about with his amazing love for Jesus in the upper room on that Thursday evening. They're not the exact same thing, but they're absolutely related. Peter, do you love me? Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And one of the things that was so apparent in Peter's response here versus Thursday, that Thursday evening, is that no longer was it this bold, braggadocious, I will die for you, Jesus, because Peter recognized his sin. He recognized that he wasn't perfect. He recognized that he had failed. And so we see a much different Peter. We see a repentant Peter. We see a a Peter who humbly says, Lord, you know that I love you. And then here's what Jesus says. Feed my lambs. Now, not exactly what I was thinking Jesus would say. You kind of think Jesus would say, I forgive you, Peter. Give me a hug. And yet in that statement, feed my lambs, we see forgiveness. What Jesus is saying is this. Before this big failure of denying me, you were a part of my family, and I had plans for you, big plans for you, to be a big part of the early Christian church. And after your sin, you are a part of my family because of what I just did for you on the cross. And I still have plans for you to be a big part of the early Christian church. Peter, nothing has changed. You have just seen another way that I love you. You've just seen another example of my grace as I apply it to this sin that you're so worried about. You're still my child. I still have plans for you. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Why would Jesus ask Peter three times? See, like making Peter squirm is 
not really believing Peter. It's not said explicitly, but you cannot read his denial and then these verses in John 21 and not recognize that the, there's a symmetry between the number of times that Peter denied Jesus and then the three times we read where not only Jesus asks him about his love, but more importantly, gives an opportunity for Jesus to tell him, Peter, you're forgiven. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Our third fill-in is something that's really important for us to remember because our feelings don't always lead us in the right way. You need to know that your forgiveness doesn't depend on how you feel. It depends on what Jesus has done. And, and, and the moments where we feel the most unlovable, the most unworthy, is when most likely we've been either focused on what we've done or on our feelings over the consequences, and that will lead us only to one place. Either, well, two, either despair or self-righteousness. If we try to find our joy, our love, our value in what we've done, but it's not based on our feelings. It's based on what Jesus has done. And I, I was thinking about this interaction of Peter and, and Jesus. And as they were talking, this was the resurrected Jesus. He had died. He had risen from the dead. And as Jesus is talking to him, all Peter needed to do was look down at Jesus' hands. And you know what Peter would have seen? Nail-scarred hands. And Peter, who knew his Old Testament, would have known these famous words from Isaiah 53 that talk about how by his wounds you are healed. And then to see in front of him not a subjective feeling of, hmm, I wonder if I'm worthy, but the objective fact of a living Savior with nail-scarred hands who went to the cross for Peter and for you and for me. And when we are feeling like there is no forgiveness for me, I would just ask this question, what have you been thinking about? How do we need to readjust our minds? Because are we focusing too much on the consequences and too much on ourselves and our sin? Or, or do we put our focus where it should be? on the nail-scarred hands of Christ. Now, one of the things I've learned over the years is that when we preach sermons here, you don't remember everything we preach. Funny thing is, I don't remember everything I preach either. And what I mean by that is this, even though it's sinking in right now, and even though uh, I, I'm praying this all makes sense to you, what I know is that guilt will pop up again. I'm not naive enough to think that now you're kind of cured of ever feeling the load of guilt. So what do you do in those moments you could allow yourself to be directed by what you say about yourself. You could allow yourself to be directed by 
what other people are saying about you or what the person who hurt you hurt is saying about you. And we need to listen and we need to make amends. But I would encourage you in those moments more than anything to hear the voice of Jesus. When you're feeling like you cannot be forgiven, turn to John 21 and remember what Peter did and how Jesus absolved him of that guilt and told Peter, nothing has changed. I still love you. and I still want you to be a part of my church. Turn to places like Psalm 103, one of these famous verses where the psalmist writes, as far as east is from the west, so far have I removed your sin and your guilt from you. Let's listen less to the voices in our head and the voices in our heart. And let's go to truth, the truth of what God has to say about you. Number four, your guilt, it might remind you of what you've done. And sometimes that can be good. Your guilt may remind you, but it does not need to define you. I love what Jesus did. Because what Peter received, I need to sometimes. Jesus went out of his way to make sure that Peter understood that he was forgiven. Not because Peter was great, because Jesus was perfect in his place. Peter was a child of God before his sin. He was a child of God after. Peter was an important part of the early Christian church before his sin, and he was an important part of the early Christian church after his sin. In fact, when the very first post-Easter sermon was preached to thousands of people in Jerusalem, guess who preached it on Pentecost? Peter did. A forgiven Peter who understood grace better now that he had received it because of his sin. That his sin actually helped him better understand the depths of God's grace. And the same is true for you. Not because of what you've done or what you haven't done, but because of the nail-scarred hands of your Savior. Let's pray. Dear Lord, depending on who we are, guilt is something that we've had to deal with or wrestle with in different ways. For some of us, it's been a big deal. For others of us, it pops up now and then. But no matter what our experience is, the place we need to look is the same to you. And maybe today, Lord, may you impress on our hearts this, this view that Peter had of a resurrected Jesus telling Peter that he's forgiven, that he still had plans for him. And may those be the same words that because of the cross, bring joy and comfort and peace to our hearts, even in the midst of our sin. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that because of Jesus, you have changed everything. We pray this in his name. Amen.